You know, this morning ultimately marks the end of the Easter season. It's the last Sunday in the season of Easter. And I know that may seem weird for, for those of you who don't know the, the church calendar and the liturgical calendar. But Easter isn't just one day in the church calendar. It's a season. And this marks the end of that Easter season. And Thursday was what's called Ascension Day. It's the day where Jesus ascended back into heaven after spending 40 days among the disciples, revealing himself to be risen from the dead. And so what we're going to do today is kind of dive into that act of ascension. We're going to look at it a bit more. We're going to dive into the perspective of the disciples and the apostles where they're trying to figure out what was going on with this Jesus. But I want to ask this question. Can you imagine what the act of Jesus ascending into heaven was like for the disciples? Can you imagine, like, have you ever thought about that for just a moment? Like, the dude was dead, then he was back alive again, and now he's with them for 40 days, and then he's just talking, and all of a sudden he's like, all right, I'm going to head out. That would be an interesting thing to, to be a disciple of Jesus and to have that happen. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to dive into that. I want to help us unpack it a little bit. I want to give us a, a bit of perspective of what I think was happening behind the scenes in the disciples' minds throughout this whole encounter. And so where we're going to be at today, we're going to be in Acts 1, verses 1 through 11. We're going to be diving into this, and I'm going to try... No, I'm going to tell a corny joke here in a second, just because i got to do it. But we're Acts 1, verses 1 through 11. It says this, in my former book, Theophilus, that was going to be the corny joke. I had a uh, Bible college professor who said his name was the Theophilus because he was the awfulest of all of his brothers and sisters. But anyway, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid, them, hid him from their sight. They were looking, looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. See, you know you're a bit awestruck when God has to send a couple of angels to get you to stop staring into the sky. 
Like, you know you're, you're a little frozen in time when the Lord has to get your attention by sending two angels from heaven to be like, hey, hey, hey. Something, something's going on there. But, but do you blame them for, for being stopped in their tracks? Like this Jesus has been around them. They've just gotten used to him again. Like they were, they were somber when he died. They were trying to figure out what was going to happen. Then he's risen from the dead. He's encountering them. And now he's vanished again. And they're like, See, and not only are, is Jesus gone, not only is he, he gone, is he gone, but everything seems to be the same on the surface. Everything seems to be the same. See, the disciples expected Jesus to bring a physical kingdom. That's what they were expecting the first time when he's doing his triumphant entry into Jerusalem and then he's crucified and they're like, okay, I guess this wasn't the dude. And then he comes back and they're still expecting this physical kingdom despite our text telling us that Jesus was teaching them about the kingdom of God throughout his 40 days. And yet they still haven't gotten it. Despite spending three years with Jesus and then witnessing him defeat death, they're still focused on an earthly kingdom instead of a spiritual one. See, I think this context helps us to see why the disciples are so caught off guard by Jesus. See, the kingdom, and this is something we must understand, the kingdom is an eternal worldwide kingdom. It's not a temporary national one. And this is what the disciples were thinking. They were thinking that this was just about Israel still. It was just about the restoration of Israel. But God was looking beyond that and thinking about the restoration of all mankind. See, what I love about this is Jesus understands that they still aren't getting it. Like, this is his last meal with them, and they're like, so is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus is like, okay, guys, like... Like, I just know you're not going to get it anymore. So I'm going to tell you about, remember this promise of the Holy Spirit. He's about to come upon you, and then you'll get it. See, Jesus understands that it's not until the Holy Spirit comes upon these apostles that they're going to understand the worldwide kingdom of God. And that's what I love about this. See, they, they ask Jesus if he's going to restore the kingdom, and he, he kind of just brushes them off a bit. He's like, eh, that's not for you to know. That's for the Father to know. And then he reminds them of the inclusivity of the kingdom. And that's something that I love is that Jesus instantly, he doesn't rebuke them. He's just like, guys, come on. I'm going to refocus you just for a second. I'm going to refocus you to this mission that I have for you. And then he's taken up into heaven. And all the disciples can do is... Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? See, too often we're stuck staring into the sky, waiting for Jesus to return instead of fulfilling what he has already called us to do. 
See, we can get so caught up in, in our expectations of what we think God is supposed to do that we forget that he's already given us a mission in the world. This wasn't the first time that the disciples and the apostles heard this mission of God to go into all the world and make disciples. This isn't the first time they're hearing this, but they expected something different. They expected an earthly kingdom to come at that moment. See, what I want us to, to realize is that, that God doesn't owe us a Damascus Road experience like Paul had. He doesn't even owe us a vision of an unreached people like Paul's Macedonian vision. Like, he doesn't owe us any of that. See, he's already given us a mission. He's given all Christians a mission to go forth with the gospel to those around them. And the beauty of this is he doesn't just tell us this, he doesn't just command or commission this, but he gives us empowerment to fulfill the task that he has called us to do. He's called us and empowered us and promised to give us the Holy Spirit. He's called us to make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that he commands. See, what I think happened as soon as these angels come and they disrupt these disciples who are just staring into the sky, I think as soon as the disciples hear these angels tell them that Jesus will come back, they remember a few teachings of Jesus. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read three passages of Scripture from Jesus' ministry because I believe that these are ones that the disciples would have remembered in this moment. So we're first going to go to, to Mark 13, verses 32 through 37. And I'm just going to read these sequentially, so we're not going to pause between them. We'll do a little expounding afterwards. Mark 13, 32 through 37. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Let's go to Luke 12, verses 35 through, through 44. This is Jesus again teaching. He says, Be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning, like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for these servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his let his house be broken into. You must also be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Peter asked, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? 
The Lord answered, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. And finally, let's go to Matthew 25. We're going to look at verses 14 through 27. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one, he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five more bags. So also the one with two bags worked... So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The one who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you had not sown and gathering where you had not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have at least received it back with interest. See, what I want us to understand here is that Jesus is showing a few parables of what it looks like to, to be at work when he's no longer here. See, all of these parables feature a master or a uh, featured character who's no longer with the servants who are no longer there amongst them. And what Jesus is doing is helping them to understand that they shouldn't just be staring, waiting for the master to return, but that they should be keeping watch, which is completely different from staring because keeping watch requires you to still be on the task that your master has called you to do. It's not about just sitting there going, that's not what he has called us to do. See, staring heavenward is the opposite of waiting on the Lord. God did not call us to sit idly by until he gives us a grand vision of what we're supposed to do. See, he's called us to be about his business by loving him with all of our hearts, our souls, our mind, and our strength, and by loving our neighbors as ourselves, by proclaiming the gospel to them. 
See, we can't just sit around and, and stare longingly for God to return. See, I know that's a a temptation and it's easy to just be like, oh God, please come back right now. It's getting bad out there, God. I need you to come back. And while yes, we should yearn for the returning of the Lord, we must realize that he has given us a task until he returns. See, the Spirit comes to to give us power to fulfill God's mission. He doesn't just leave and and leave us on our own. He doesn't just say, okay, good luck, best of luck, you got this. No, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. See, Jesus doesn't just promise the Spirit so that we can have a good old time gathered with the believers so that we can speak in tongues and prophesy. And I have no problems with those things. I do both of those things. But we can't just do those things in our holy huddles and then never tell anyone about him. See, Jesus promises the Spirit and gives the Spirit so that we will be instruments of his kingdom. And we'll go over this more next week in looking at the Spirit's role in fulfilling the mission of God. But today, I want to go a bit of a different route for us. See, as I was looking at this, as I read through Acts 1, as I dove into those parables, and there were definitely others we could have dove into, you know, I realized that my prayer for today is that these things will, will convict us a little bit. That's my ultimate hope for today is that by, by reading this encounter of the apostles on Ascension Day and reading through these parables of the master calling the servants to be at work, being watchful, that they would convict us a little bit. See, I want to dispel some rumors here because I think a lot of times we think conviction is a, is a bad word in the church. It's something that we, we don't want to talk about. It's this uncomfortable thing. But, but I want to be clear, conviction is the evidence that the Spirit is at work within us. Conviction is evidence that the Spirit is at work within us. We should be excited when we feel the conviction of the Spirit because that means that God's Spirit is alive and active and that He is calling us upward into Him. And I also want to be clear that the goal of conviction is not shame. I think too often we think conviction is all about shame. It's about making us feel bad. But that's not the goal of conviction. The goal of conviction is transformation. The reason that that God's Spirit convicts us is so that we can see our error and then respond and allow Him to transform us and go after His way. See, I think the ultimate difference in in what matters in when what ultimately matters is how we respond to conviction. Do you think we can, we can choose? And too often, I think we choose to feel like we don't measure up and then that we never will. We think that conviction brings us shame. But the proper response to conviction is to, yes, let's feel like we don't measure up because conviction is showing us that we have failed to do what God has commanded us to do. 
But then it's realizing that the Spirit can transform us. It's saying, yes, I don't measure up, but by your Spirit, God, I know that you can transform me. By your Spirit, I know that things can be different. Ultimately, the choice is ours in how we respond to the conviction of the Spirit. We can wallow, we can say that we're not good enough, that we never will be, that we're only dirty, rotten sinners, or we can see that, yes, I was a dirty, rotten sinner. Yes, I didn't do these things that the Lord has called me to do, but I know that he can transform me. See, I hope that, that we'll stop staring into the sky, just, just waiting and longing for the Lord instead of being about his business. See, I think if we'll take a moment to realize this, the world around us is active in spreading their vision for the future. And it doesn't involve the random end of the world quickly. See, and we know that, yes, Jesus will come back. We, we see that in the scriptures that we've read this morning. But our goal isn't to just be like, Jesus, come back. It's getting real bad out there. He tells us to go forth. And we must be about his business. I hope that we'll begin to be instruments of God's kingdom. See, and I think as we look at Acts 1 that... The apostles were convicted when they realized that they didn't understand the kingdom of God. See, I think as soon as they hear those angels telling them this, as soon as they hear this Jesus telling them that this kingdom is worldwide, that it's beyond what they have in their minds, that they begin to respond a bit differently. See, and I think they could have just walked away defeated at that moment, feeling like they were never going to get it. Because after all, all of their experience, we can read through the New Testament, we can read through the gospel accounts, and time after time we see the disciples, the apostles, just not getting it. They're constantly not understanding the way of Jesus, but that's not what they did. They didn't walk away. They didn't think that, oh, well, I'm always going to be stuck this way. Instead, they did what Jesus asked them to do. And the first thing that Jesus asked them to do was wait on the promise of the Holy Spirit. And they did that, and they allowed themselves to be transformed by the inworking of the Spirit. Now, did they do everything perfectly after this? Not at all. Like, in fact, Peter, the dude who's supposed to be the leader of this church, who's supposed to keep all the brothers in line, we see the Apostle Paul later on confronting him over sin in his life. See, the reality is, is that we are not always going to measure up. We're not always going to measure up, and we will feel the conviction of the Spirit when we sin or lean into complacency or think about just the things that we want. But how we respond in that moment is what matters. And I want us to think about this for just a second. I want you to dwell on this question. How cool is it that God cares enough about you that he allows you to be convicted? 
How cool is it that God cares enough about you that he allows you to be convicted? See, God could just allow you to continue on, to keep going your own way, but instead, through conviction, he provides a reminder of what it means to follow his way. Again, conviction is evidence that the Spirit is at work within us. See, conviction isn't a result of an angry God or a God who just wants, us, wants to get his way. Conviction is an expression of God's kindness, his patience, and his love. It is a good thing. It is a joyous thing. It's an expression of who God is because his desire is for us to be under his dominion. Yes, it is for us to follow him, But he doesn't do this by just beating us down. He does this by inviting us to follow him. He's patient with us when we fail. No matter how many times we walk away, the Spirit is there providing conviction, leading us back into his truth. This morning, what I want us to do is, I just want to encourage us to stop staring. I want to encourage us to just stop. Thank you, Jesus. That cloud, you know, kind of looks like you, Jesus. I want us to stop doing that. See, I think it can be really easy for us to look around and become paralyzed because we can't see Jesus. We don't see him at work. We see things getting worse and worse. We see gross sin. We see perversion all around us. And it can be easy to feel defeated in that moment. It can be easy to feel like there's no hope for ourselves or for the world around us. But we know this is not our reality. We know this is not the reality because our reality is that God is still at work in the world today. But I got I to gotta let us in on a secret. And it's not really a secret, but I got to let us in on this. The way that God is at work today is through his people. He is at work through you and me. And he's empowered us to carry out his work through the Spirit. He has made us ambassadors of the kingdom of God, empowering us with his spirit to go forth into all the world. So we don't have to be paralyzed and stuck staring into heaven, waiting for Jesus to just put an end to it all. We've been given a commission and we've been given the tools needed to transform the world by spreading the good news of the kingdom of God. See, God doesn't just give us the commission. He gives us the tools necessary to be ambassadors of his kingdom. See, the reality of this all is that, yes, one day Jesus will return. And while those of us who, who know him will be rejoicing over that, there will also be great sorrow when Jesus returns. And I think that's a reality that we often fail to understand is that there will be great sorrow for those who do not know him. But we know that God's heart is for all to be saved and for all to follow him. 
And that's where we come in as the body of Christ, is realizing that we're not supposed to just look around at the world around us and being like, God, this place is dirty, it's, it's unredeemable, it's completely separated from you. Because while it is dirty, while it is sinful, the reality is that it is redeemable. It is redeemable, and it's our job to take that message to the world. Realizing that we have been given hope in Christ, and that the world desperately needs that hope. So I want to challenge us to to get out of our own heads a little bit. To stop thinking about what we think the kingdom of God is, Just like the disciples thought the kingdom of God was just for the land of Israel to get out of our head a little bit and realize that this is a worldwide kingdom. It is an eternal kingdom. It is God inviting us to be his children. So what I want us to do is I want us to, to make the most of our time here. Our time here on earth by allowing the Spirit to convict us. Let's, let's seek the conviction of the Spirit. Let's not just see it as something that is we don't want to talk about because it's uncomfortable. Let's seek the conviction of the Spirit. Let's ask God to convict us in the ways where we don't follow Him the way that He would have us. Let's ask for the Spirit to empower us. And finally, let's ask the Spirit to transform us, not just bringing us conviction, but working on our hearts so that we would be able to respond to Him well. So that we would be transformed day by day more and more into the image of Christ. Let's ask Him to to transform us, not just for our own sakes, Not just so that we can say that we're sanctified or that we're blessed and highly favored or that everything's going great for us. Let's also ask him to transform us for the sake of our neighbors, for the sake of the world around us. See, God is at work. He's at work in us and he wants to be at work through us. He's calling us to follow after him. And it's time for us to stop staring. It's time for us to stop staring and allow the Spirit to transform us so that we are transformed both internally and externally. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you desire our transformation. God, we thank you that you have provided your spirit to us, that you have empowered us with your spirit, with the power of your spirit to go forth into all the world, spreading the good news of the kingdom of God. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would convict our hearts, that you would show us the ways in which we're not following you, and that you would soften our hearts and allow us to be transformed by you, Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that you would keep Jesus always before us, that we wouldn't just stare into heaven, just simply waiting on him to return, but that we would be watchful, knowing that he is 
coming back, and therefore we should be at work. Holy Spirit, I ask you to move in our hearts and our minds. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.